I shared this last year, but um, I want to repeat it, not because I don't have anything else that I could say, but because I think it's powerful enough that every time I read it, I get a blessing being reminded about it. Going back to the parable Jesus told of the sower and the seed, Matthew 13, Jesus said, Other seed fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. Now, it's important to keep in mind that if you understand seeds, people make a lot of mistakes because they forget one of the most basic principles of seed growth, and that is the element of time. Nobody can expect to put a seed in the ground and come back in a few minutes or a few days and find a ready-to-harvest fruit. But when it comes to our, our own life, our own spiritual and even secular life, sometimes we overlook that. You are not going to put any seeds in your mind and expect to get a harvest from that right away. So when you read the Word of God, you can't expect that there's going to be some amazing new spiritual experience you're going to get while you're reading it. The farmer, the gardener, puts the seed in the soil by faith, knowing what that seed is and what that seed is assured of doing as long as you follow the laws. You know, I mean, we, we used to, when we were growing cucumbers, um, we used to be able to, to predict from when we put the seed in the ground, we could predict to the day when we would harvest our first cucumber. And uh, we were never more than 24 hours off. There is time that is the essence of the growing equation, and time is of the essence of the spiritual equation. You read the Word of God by faith, not to get a spiritual experience at the moment. And I can't tell you how many times, especially earlier in my Christian experience, when I would go in there and you've got this kind of struggle going on in your mind because you sit down and have a devotional time with God and you walk away and you say to yourself, you know, really, I didn't really get anything out of that. I didn't feel like God was speaking to me. No, he didn't say he would do that. He said, study the word because the word is a seed. Don't study the word because this is going to be God speaking to your mind. That's actually a dangerous thing. That is, that is a different, um, different subject. But, but um, fanaticism has as its root, if you study into it, fanaticism has as its root the idea that God speaks to you through his spirit. True Bible spirituality has as its root the idea that you plant a seed by faith knowing the character of the seed that you're putting in your mind and knowing that in time that seed will bring forth a harvest. Your spiritual experience that you're going to gain from that seed, from that time in the Word, probably will be months before it's achieved. But you keep planting the seed and taking care of the seed, following all the laws of spiritual gardening, and you know without a doubt, that that seed will bear a harvest. It might be weeks, it might be months, it might even be years, but it will bear a harvest. Now, the flip side of that is equally true. 
Every weed seed, meaning every unproductive seed or plant or thought that you put in your mind, is also going to produce a harvest. And it also will take time before you realize it. Many people sit down and they watch. In fact, it's a big debate in our society today. Does watching violence on television, in movies or on video games, does that create violence? And, and people who enjoy that kind of fare say, no, it doesn't. Well, how do they know it doesn't? Because they say, I sat down and I watched a violent movie and I didn't walk up and feel like going and killing somebody. All right? You don't understand the way the mind works which is like soil, and the way thoughts work, which are like seeds, if you believe that. Because it's going to take sometimes years before that's going to come out. And remember, Jesus said that violence doesn't necessarily show itself through the open act. It shows itself through the thought processes as well. Now, when you understand that there's time involved, it can give you a lot of caution about what you put in your mind because you know that it is not necessarily going to show up right away. What you put into your children's mind is not necessarily going to show up right away. So you can, you can read novels, you can watch television programs, movies, and this kind of thing, and you don't necessarily feel any different. Just the same as if you read the Word, you aren't necessarily going to feel any different. But both will produce a harvest. And this point right here, if we can get the slide up again, this point right here is equally, if not more, important. You have to understand time in order to be patient. But you have to understand the amazing power of multiplication to really, truly get what you're dealing with. Some time ago, I took a cherry seed, tomato and I cut it open and I said, you know, this is a pretty small tomato. Uh, how many seeds are there? And I counted each one of them. And um, I'm going to start right here. One tomato. Counted 101 seeds in one cherry tomato. And um, I also counted there were 22 of those cherry tomatoes on one cluster of cherry tomatoes. If you've grown cherry tomatoes, you know that they grow on the strand that hangs out from the plant and has all these, these little tomatoes hanging on it. There were 22 tomatoes in one cluster. And in our greenhouse, those plants produced one of those clusters every week. So um, you do the math from that. We get 26 weeks out of each crop. In Arizona, we grow two crops per year. And we expect 90% germination on the seed. So, where does that leave you? At the end of the year, you got 103,990 seeds out of two seeds, one for each crop. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Okay? Now, if we start at that point, then we go here. At the end of the year, those 103,000 seeds comes out to be not quite seven ounces, not a bunch. Fit that in a small measuring cup on your counter. But if you take all of those seeds and plant them again. Now remember, going back to the spiritual angle here, what you, every thought you think is a seed. 
When that seed produces its harvest, how do you know it's producing a harvest? Because you're thinking more of those thoughts. Does that make sense? When a thought pops into your head, where did that head come from? I mean, not where the head come from. Where did the thought come from? We say, well, it just popped into my mind. No, it didn't. That was a harvest from what you just sowed or sowed years before. If the seeds are thoughts, then the thoughts are also seeds. So every time that thought pops back into your head and you think about it, you just sowed that seed again. So the more you think a thought, the more you will think that thought in the future. When you look at relationships, people have trouble in their relationships. There's, there's a stressful marriage between a husband and a wife. How did it get that way? At one point in time, you couldn't separate them. I used to work at a high school, and when these young people would fall in love, um, you couldn't make enough rules, and you couldn't watch them carefully enough to keep them apart. And we observed that many of them would get married, and then it wasn't too long before you couldn't make enough rules to keep them together. But if one, at one time they were madly in love, what happened that now there's all this, this tension that's developed in the relationship? Well, it's the product of thoughts, right? Every thought and every feeling that ever goes through your mind is a seed, and it's going to produce a like harvest, but it's going to be multiplied. So you, you kind of get a little fight going on. You just planted a whole bunch of seeds. It's like finding that dandelion, and you shake the stem, and then they just go everywhere at one time. That's like a good fight, okay? That just planted a bunch of seeds, and in time, those are going to come up and you're going to have more fights. And that's the way the relationship goes. If you want to make a change to that, you have to use two points. The principle of weed management that we talked about yesterday, and understanding that it's going to take time, understanding the way that seeds work, and you can say, you know what, we're going to start working on avoiding the circumstances that we know produce these conflicts that tend to stimulate these kind of thoughts and feelings in our emotions between the two of us. So you work on trying to eliminate the weeds, and at the same time you begin cultivating the positive plants, the productive plants that you want. And like I said yesterday, you try to keep those so tightly together that there isn't as much room for the weed seeds to grow. And before you know it, in time, if you cultivate intelligently a relationship that has trouble by following the principles of gardening, you can garden a good relationship. Start weeding out the, the, the difficult stuff and start building the positive and productive stuff. The same thing is true with parenting. Kids, parents who have children who by the time they get to be uh, pre-adolescent and adolescent, and are losing interest in spiritual things, you are reaping, they are reaping the results of, of seeds that were planted. Maybe not intentionally. While, the, while man slept, the enemy sowed the seed. But you can change that by gardening the right crop. Intelligent weed management and intelligent production of the good plant. So, Going back here to multiplication, one year you have uh, not quite seven ounces. Look at the second year. 
All those plants planted, this is obviously completely hypothetical, because uh, that would be quite a task to, to, to achieve this. But I'm just looking at the power of multiplication. At the end of year two, you have two semi-truck loads of seed. 122,706 pounds. What are you going to have in year three? 12,800 pounds of seed, equal to the weight of the Great Pyramid in Egypt. That's year three. Where does it go from there? Look at this. Year six. Enough seeds to equal the weight of the world. And in year 17, the weight of the entire known universe. All the galaxies, all the stars, everything that we know out there in 17 years from two seeds. 17 years. That's not very long. There is no force known in the universe as powerful as a seed. It isn't as impressive because of the element of time. A seed can do something that an atomic bomb cannot do, but we as humans are much more awed by the instantaneous than we are by the timed. But the, we're told that the very life of God is in that seed. There's a tremendous amount of power in the seed and it depends on unleashing it and capturing it depend on, on two points being clearly understood. The one of time and the one of multiplication. If you let certain things start developing in your children, you can guarantee that in time those are going to become stronger and, and much more pervasive, either for good or for bad. Now I want to to segue from here, as we think about, about uh, multiplication and time, um, we've come full circle here. Look at this slide. The very first question that I asked at the beginning of the seminar is, why should I garden? And as we start looking at these things here, there's two things that come, that come very clear to me. And number one is, gardening makes it much more clearly understood the principles of time and multiplication in terms of spiritual growth and in terms of, of developing a, a real meaningful relationship with God and parenting and relationships. All these things are explained. That was the, when I looked at the benefits of, of uh, gardening on the first day, spiritual understanding can really only be understood to the fullest degree when you look at plants and the garden. Because the same laws that govern the growth of earthly seed sowing govern the growth of the spiritual plant in the soul, or spiritual life in the soul. So, let's take that and look at the times in which we're living. And um, I'm going to read a passage from Matthew 24. The disciples came to Jesus and they asked Jesus, What shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. I want to ask you a question. How do you get deceived? I'm going to take that question one step further. Can you be deceived and know you're deceived? 
Is it possible, I want you to think about that, is it possible to be deceived and know you're deceived? And I think that the answer is clearly no, and I'm, I'm glad I've heard other responses that way. You see, if you, if you let that thought turn in your mind, Jesus said, take heed that no man deceive you, but how are you going to know if you're deceived if, if you can't be deceived and know it? And that brings me to a very chilling question. How do I know I'm not deceived? How do I know I'm not deceived? If, if I knew I was deceived, I wouldn't be deceived. How do I know I'm not? And the very first thing that came out of Jesus' mouth when the disciples said, what will be the sign of your coming? How do we know when, when you are going to be near? And Jesus said, be very careful. <clears throat> Be very careful that no one deceives you. He goes on and he says, There will become false Christs and false prophets and shall so show great signs and wonders, insomuch if it were possible, they would deceive the very elect. Now, I have the wrong, the wrong passage on that, I'm quite sure. It's a little later in Matthew 24. You think about... What Jesus is trying to do here is to sober us. It might be possible to deceive even the very elect. So, when you look at being deceived, every Christian group that I have ever met, and I've studied with a number, every Christian group believes they're following the Word of God, that their belief system is biblical. And yet we know from Bible prophecy that most Christian faiths are deceiving people. Is that right? Why is it? And I'm going to, I'm going to state that the reason that they get deceived is because they base their assurance on the Bible they are following, and what trips them up is the Bible they aren't following. When you normally don't find people who are having errors in their belief because they read the Bible wrong, but because they ignored some passages of Scripture that would have set them right. Does that make sense? Okay? You will find people agreeing that you are saved by faith in Christ. And they will give you stacks of Bible texts to back that up. But when it comes to, for example, the, the belief in the seventh-day Sabbath, they ignore those Bible texts. And they might pick up a few that would tend to support their particular um, view of, of um, worshiping on Sunday or, or that it doesn't matter which day. So I want to emphasize that what gets people is... The Bible you don't follow, not the Bible that you do. And I think that the same thing happens to us in our religious belief, the same as it happens to anybody. And I know that I've listened to a number of evangelistic meetings, and I'll tell you what, it's inspiring to listen to the strength of biblical assurance that we have as Seventh-day Adventists that our teachings are biblically based. 
And we can feel very comfortable with that. But the question I ask is, Jesus said the very elect, that's the remnant. It might be possible even to deceive them, but remember, deceptions are something that you don't even know is happening to you. And deception happens not from the 28 fundamental beliefs that are soundly scriptural based, but the something out there that isn't Bible that we're, that we're ignoring, that we are holding on to. And uh, this is uh, also from Matthew 13. I see that I put the wrong passage on that, but it's from Matthew 13. The seed following among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life, and what is the next three words? Deceitfulness of wealth or riches. So we come to the end of time, and Jesus says the sign of the coming of Christ is going to be very closely allied with the with the deception. And uh, he tells us that at least one of the ways in which we get deceived is through uh, prosperity. And uh, quoting from Second Peter, therefore, dear friends, Peter said, since you have been forewarned. Be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the air of the lawless and fall from your secure position. So Jesus, speaking through Peter, under inspiration, says, you've been forewarned. You know there's going to be a deception. You know that deception is going to involve prosperity. You know that the deception is going to involve a lot of these things that, that you're going to find in Scripture. So be on your guard so that you won't be carried away by air. In other words, you won't be deceived. And uh, here's another one from Second Peter. Above all. Now what does that imply? That's the most important thing. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires. Now I would like to suggest that scoffing is not an attitude that you necessarily associate with scoffing. Scoffing can be not just the feelings that you have, but the words and even more, the life that you're living. In other words, Jesus says, be on your guard, be careful, be sober, be vigilant. There's, there's a dangerous time and it's so deceptive out there at the end of time that even the remnant or the elect might be deceived. And that calls for intense heart-searching, soul-searching, sobriety, and being on your guard, and if we become careless and lose our diligence, we are scoffing at his warnings even though we may not feel it in our heart. And that's one of the deceptions, one of the ways in which we can be deceived. But notice here, so Peter's saying the most important thing for the Christian church at the last days is the danger that we will say where is the coming he has promised? Because ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Now, we don't necessarily have to say that with our lips. We can say it by the way that we're actually living, by the choices we make, by the interests we have and develop. So if the most important thing at the end of time is to, is to be 
guarding against the, the, the feeling that is culturally pervasive that Jesus isn't necessarily coming anytime soon because nothing now is different than it was 50 years ago when I remember when I was a young child, they had, our church had a, a um, program called Mission 72. They wanted, Mission 72 was to take the gospel to the world by 1972. How long ago was that? 40 years, or more than 40 years ago. Our church has been believing Jesus is going to be coming right around the corner from several lifetimes. And the result is, is that we're seeing culturally, not just in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but in Christianity in general, but certainly within the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we're beginning to see this cultural feeling that, you know what, Jesus is coming, but it's becoming an intellectual and an intellectually hollow statement that we are not living according to the profession that we have. We are not acting like we really believe Jesus is coming soon, and we are beginning to participate in the prosperity that our world is offering so easily. That has, I think, um, an awful lot to do with, um, with this next passage here from last day events out of the cities is my message at this time that was more than a hundred years ago now we think of the message for this time being carrying the 28 fundamental beliefs to people and there's a truth to that but she makes it clear that very intimately associated belief is not just something you give intellectual assent to belief is something that you live and if you believe that Jesus is coming and if you believe that the, that, the, that the doctrines of this church are meaningful, then you will live what you believe. I always tell people, if somebody ran into my house and said, there's a tornado coming right your way, it's pretty easy to know whether I believe it by what I do. If you believe that Jesus' coming is coming right at you, it's pretty easy to know whether you believe it by what you do. So this one here says that the message for this time is to get out of the cities, be assured that the call is for our people to locate miles away from the large cities. Now, I want you to keep in mind that at this time, miles meant a certain time to be able to make that travel. Not just a literal, hey, you're a few miles from a large city. Back then when you were horse and buggy, and you were traveling a few miles an hour, miles was several hours away from the city. She says, one look at San Francisco as it is today would speak to your intelligent mind, showing you the necessity of getting out of the city. One look at San Francisco circa 1900 would speak to an intelligent mind about the necessity of getting out of the city. Now, I'll tell you what. San Francisco circa 1900 is nothing like what we have today. I want you to take this sobering thought into consideration. San Francisco circa 1900 is smaller than Lansing, Michigan. Is that a sobering thought? Going back here, she says, 
One look at San Francisco as it is today would speak to your intelligent mind, showing you the necessity of getting out of the cities. Okay? San Francisco at that time was a third of the size of Grand Rapids. And she says one look and, and, and cities at that time were generally speaking less corrupt than even smaller cities today. So we're not talking about New York and you're not talking about Los Angeles or Chicago. She's saying that cities, even what we would call today, you know, more modest-sized cities, were, um, were the size that she was speaking of. Now, as Seventh-day Adventists, we preach about Revelation 18, the call to come out of Babylon. And I think that there's a great danger that we preach to everybody else. We like to hold the don't-be-judgmental message when it comes to my own personal lifestyle choices, but when it comes to things like the Sabbath or, or something like that, then, then we like to definitely apply it to somebody else. And um, we say that uh, the call is to come out of Babylon, and I'd like to quote this from Great Controversy. 300 years ago, our church... Now, this was applying to the Presbyterian church. But remember, at that time, the Presbyterian church was... Uh, and, and any of those churches at that time were, um, were the Reformed churches. They filled the role in their era that our church is filling today. 300 years ago, when this was written... Our church with an open Bible on her banner and this motto, search the scriptures on her scroll, marched out from the gates of Babylon. And I believe that that statement could apply equally to our church as to any other Protestant Reformed church. Is, is it not true that we had an open Bible and search the scripture as our motto? And the question was, did they come clean out of Babylon? 2 Corinthians 6 says, Come out from among them, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, says the Lord, and you'll be my sons and daughters, and I'll be a God to you. So, I'm putting that in there because when you think about, when you think about coming out of the cities, it's very easy today with digital media it's very easy to not come clean out of the cities, just as it's easy to not come clean out of Babylon. You can have a very citified lifestyle and a very citified spiritual experience and, and so on uh, wherever you are because of, of uh, DVDs and the internet and uh, so on and so forth. And... When, we, when you look at what, what the um, messenger of God said about getting out of the cities, it's not just to enjoy an easier time during the time of trouble. And this is one of the things that I'll be very honest is very troubling to me about the emphasis of getting out of the cities that many people in our church place on that message. Okay? 
learn how to prepare your own food, get off the grid, do all this kind of thing. Why? Very can be very me-centric. I want to have, I want to make sure that when that happens, I'm in the best possible position for me. And I and I know that that there's a lot of people who who are doing that that don't necessarily have that idea. But I'm saying that that is a danger that we can be thinking about when you look at the principle of gardening that I've really been trying to share this week is the full circle thing that our purpose is to minister, give, try to meet the needs that are out there. They are hurting people and they are going to be benefited by the truths that we have. But if we are absorbed in worldly interests, if our life is is conformed to worldly customs so that our own personal experience mirrors the world, how can we assist them? If our health isn't remarkably better than theirs, if our marriages aren't remarkably better than theirs, if our parenting isn't remarkably more productive than theirs, why would they want to listen to me? And so when you look at the principles of gardening, I give my whole purpose for being is to minister to the needs of others. I move to the city in order to protect my children and my children's parents because the influences of the world are going to conform me and are going to deceive me and I won't even be aware of it. And boy, one of the things that I think is the most sobering story in the Bible is, is the story of Lot. We're told in the New Testament that his righteous soul was vexed by the wickedness around him. When he came out of the city, and Jesus said that as it was in the days of Lot, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man when he comes. Lot heeded the call to come out of the city before the destruction. And it was a type of the experience of God's people before at the end of time. How many children did Lot save? I would like to postulate he saved none. If um, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about Lot's two daughters after they came out of the city, but the moral condition they were in when they came out certainly doesn't lead me to believe that they were ever going to be saved. And um, why was that the case? Because even though Lot had maintained his righteous soul in Sodom, although it was certainly tarnished, his kids had been corrupted beyond repair. And uh, as we look at the call to come out of the city, it's for the purpose, in large part, of our children. But it's also for our own, because whatever we think is going to be in time multiplied. And... um, and the influences that we are exposed to and that we are exposing our children to by being there, when you look at the principles of the weeds, you, that's the first thing is try to keep the weed seeds from getting in there to begin with. And once they get in there, do what you can to get them out as soon as possible while the, while the plants are small. And uh, well, last principles here. Again and again, the Lord has instructed that our people are to take their families away from the cities into the country where they can do what? 
raise their own provisions, for in the future the problem of buying and selling will be a very serious one. When, when you look at this council, a little common sense goes a long ways. If the problem of buying and selling is going to be a serious one, that indicates that the time in which the, the prohibition on buying and selling, the time in which that's in effect, is going to be either short or long. Long. Obviously, and there's a number of statements like this, obviously, the restrictions on buying and selling are going to be long enough that if you don't know how to raise your own fruits and vegetables, you are going to be in very serious condition. You're going to be put into a position where you are going to be forced to compromise your faith or starve. And I have heard many Seventh-day Adventists, and I hate to be this blunt, but I'm going to say it. I've heard many Seventh-day Adventists say, God will take care of me. God will not do for you what it is in your power to do for yourself. That is a principle that is so clear in Scripture you cannot miss it. You cannot ignore His warnings and expect that He's going to miraculously intervene to keep you from experiencing the results of your own neglect. So when He says that the, that the problem of buying and selling is going to be a very serious one, if we have an opportunity to prepare for it ahead of time, and I'm not saying that God won't help certain people during that time, but what I'm saying is, is that if you had and have an opportunity to be prepared, it would be presumptuous to believe that God is going to, is going to miraculously intervene because of your unwillingness or, or whatever. And I, and I don't want to sound in any way unsympathetic or judgmental. I'm saying God is warning us for a reason. God is warning us because these are very real events that are going to happen, and, and we know from 2 Peter that the time at the end is going to be characterized by a cultural perception that Jesus' coming is not happening anytime soon. Now, the only place that cultural perception would be would be in the church. The generation we are living in right now is the first in the Seventh-day Adventist Church's history, last 160 years, in which that cultural perception is becoming prevalent. I believe that that in itself speaks volumes about where we are in Earth's history. Jesus made it so clear, at such a time as you think not, the Son of Man is coming. At such a time as you think not. This is the first time right now, in our church, where I believe that it is becoming very culturally prevalent to, not by what we say or what we intellectually believe, but by the life we're living and the way in which we're making our choices, we are showing that we do not expect Jesus to be coming anytime soon, and that is a very clear indication that Jesus' coming is probably pretty soon. And... Um, Jesus gave numerous warnings about the fact that at that particular time, you know, if you knew when the thief was going to come, you wouldn't let your house be broken into. If you knew that Jesus was going to be coming soon, you would be taking steps to prepare for it. Jesus warned us. And one of the ways, and I certainly, I certainly um, um, don't think it can be overemphasized, but it has to be kept in perspective. Jesus says to us that 
Again and again, the Lord has instructed our people to take their families away from the cities into the country where they can raise their own provisions, for in the future the problem of buying and selling will be a very serious one. We should now begin to heed the instruction given us over and over again. Okay? Repeatedly, in this one paragraph, the term again and again, over and over, Get out of the cities into rural districts where the houses are not crowded close together where you'll be free from the interference of enemies. It is true. If you follow the, the accounts of God, it will go better for you. But that is not the motive. The motive is ministry. And, um, you know, in all, of the, in all of the eagerness to avoid any kind of physical deprivation, we focus on gardening and, and preserving and getting off the grid and these kinds of things, which are good. But don't neglect the most important consideration is the garden in your own mind and particularly the garden in your kids or grandkids. I have four precious grandchildren and they are very much on my mind. And, um, and I, would certainly, I would certainly hate to see my grandchildren reasonably well prepared for for the time of trouble by having provisions to eat while they were planting in their garden heart seeds that were not going to produce a harvest for eternal life. So don't, don't, forget, don't forget that the real, the real objective is the fact that as you garden, you are not just learning how to prepare food for that time that is coming when it will be difficult to buy and sell, we are also, the work itself is character developing. It is the work itself. Children need, and those of us who are graying children, need the character development that comes from working the soil. The spiritual understanding that comes from working closely with, with those, as that one statement said, those Living plants, being in contact with a miracle of life, has a refining influence on our character as well as quickening our mind. So as we, as we do this, this gardening, don't see gardening merely as a hobby. You know, somebody has model airplanes and somebody likes to quilt or whatever it happens to be, and, uh, and I like to garden. If we believe that Jesus is coming soon, If we truly believe that Jesus is coming soon, we should have an intensity of interest in gardening for at least two very good reasons. Number one, because we need to learn how to prepare food for the time in which it is not as, when it's going to be difficult to buy and sell. And that doesn't mean you have to have a large garden now, but if you have the knowledge of gardening and you live in a place where you can expand your garden as needed, then you are in a much better position to, to uh, roll out a large garden, to scale it up. And I think that that's going to be a tremendous ministry. There are going to be people at that time who hear the message in the future when some of these things are beginning to happen uh, and they're going to be wanting to move out of the city. 
many of those people will be abandoning their homes because the, you know, they're going to have to walk away from mortgages because they hear the call of God to accept the truths for this time and they recognize that they can't stay where they are and be faithful in keeping God's commandments. And so they're going to need to move out of the city and they're going to come with nothing but the clothes on their back. And those who have heeded this counsel, it's not just for our own good. It will be for the ministry that we can have to those in need. And, uh, and that's a good thing. If you uh, learn also the spiritual lessons, living in close quarters with people who um, are going to be going through some trauma, like Lot's wife, having just abandoned everything in their life that they had lived for, they're going to have quite a shock moving to the country. And uh, if you understand some of these principles, you can minister to them psychologically and emotionally, not just physically. And uh, you can certainly make your own work easier by having learned some of those difficult lessons today. And then, of course, the, the spiritual growth that comes from learning the lessons that God teaches us through the plants are going to be uh, very, very important as well. At this point, um, if there's any questions, the uh, mic is right there. And uh, come up to the... Yes? Could you put the last slide back up from Adventist Home 141? Okay. If anybody has any questions, I would uh, be happy to take them up here at the mic. And... Um, yes? Pardon me? Come up, come up to the mic and um, be happy to answer questions. I had a question about uh, crop rotation. When we talk about diseases being transferred uh, from year to year in soil, we rotate uh, tomatoes and other things like that. How far away from one space to another uh, should you move crops so that you're not getting that soil-borne disease transferred through the soil. I mean, we have like a 250-square-foot garden now, and we do rotate, but then yes. what, what's, what's feasible and what's usable? Okay, very good question. Rotating crops, um, there are certain diseases, although um, I would like to put a plug in again for organic farming because I believe that if you have a microbial-rich soil, the good microbes are always looking for bad microbes to eat. And uh, so you're going to tend to, if you build up the soil well, you're going to tend to have fewer issues with, with that. But that is certainly a problem. Roots are generally going to be limited to five or six feet. And, uh, you know, from the center point of a plant, they're not going to go much more than five or six feet. So I think if you keep your rotations um, so that there's that kind of distance. And the other thing is, is that, Many plants are in families. You know, you have the cucurbits, which are um, your squash, melons, and cucumbers, things like that. Those are in the same family, and uh, botanically, and those plants tend to share similar diseases. The nightshades are also a, a similar, are also a family, and they contain your eggplants, peppers, and tomatoes. So they share similar diseases. But a lot of times, diseases in one family are not generally going to be very susceptible or another family is not going to be susceptible to it. In other words, a lot of the diseases that affect nightshades are not going to affect 
the uh, cucurbit family. And so if you keep that in mind as you rotate it, you can, you can also make it easier. I had one more question, uh, and that is um, identification of, of, of diseases. It seems like once you identify a disease, it can be too late. And I understand with uh, correct um, uh, organic methods and things like that, that tends to inhibit that. But is there some books that you can get where you can get actual pictures of what these diseases look like so that you're not just shooting in the dark when you're dealing with some of these? Yes, that's a very good question. Um, identifying the disease, probably one of them. Today, it's very much easier to, to identify diseases because of the internet. You know, there's a, there's a lot of pictures of different plant diseases and insect pests and weeds, etc., that are, are readily available doing an internet search. So you can pictures, do a search for pictures of tomato diseases or tomato root diseases or tomato uh, leaf diseases, and you can get a lot of that kind of stuff. When it comes to diseases, the only really sure way of identifying is to take a sample to your extension agent, uh, for example, Michigan State University, send it to them by, by uh, mail or take it to them. We take, we take samples, usually uh, two or three a year, from Good News Farm to, to Michigan State University, and it's no charge. They'll, they'll um, identify it. And that really uh, is important because it helps you know who your enemy is. I've got a question on pests. I yes. know my sister has had uh, the corn borer and her zucchini and cannot get rid of them. It's in the ground. It's not raised beds. Um, but also, I, you know, what do you do with the tomato worm and <laughs> a number of those things organically so you're not doing pesticides? Yes. Um, you know, there's... Um, trying to think of the best way to answer that. There are, there are a lot of tools that organic gardeners have to use to deal with diseases and, and as well as uh, insect pests. The problem is, is that many of these insect pests are um, prolific, so you can kill them, but there's a lot more coming in right behind them. So um, one of the things, worms, just a rule of thumb, a worm that's going to eat a leaf is probably going to be susceptible to Bt. Bacillus thuringiensis is a bacteria that is toxic to Lepidoptera and, and other, but particularly Lepidoptera uh, genus, species. So you can spray, it's readily available in different trade names, um, and you spray it on your plant, and then the worm comes and chews the, the um, leaf and ingest this bacteria and it paralyzes its gut and it dies in a few hours. Um, so BT is, is one that you can use. Uh, probably the un yes, it's, it's organic. It's, uh, it's available online. Most of these things are readily available online, ship uh, Amazon and other places. And also it's very prevalent in garden stores and so on. Like Bob Tom, yes. And um, have my wife correcting me. So uh, you can use BT. Uh, a universal insecticide, especially for the smaller insects, is insecticidal soap. Now, even though I'm not supposed to say it, um, the insects don't care whether it's hand soap, dish soap, or a, a packaged uh, 
EPA-approved insecticidal soap. Commercially, we can't use anything other than an EPA-registered product. But um, the fact is, is that a, a clear, non-scented, non-flavored, non or I guess you don't eat soap, but anyway, they put all that fancy stuff in there, colors and soaps and scents. But if you get a plain, clear soap, one tablespoon to the gallon or two tablespoons to the gallon, and spray a tiny bit in, a, in one of these little hand, uh, like one quart, um, squirt bottles, and uh, try a small area and wait a day and see if there's any harm that comes to your plant from it. You might be able to cut down the, the, uh, the, the amount that you put on if you do that. But insecticidal soap is a universal insecticide, and it's very effective, but you have to spray enough on that it, that it, uh, it floods the, the insect, and um, they die within seconds. Very effective. So but, uh, you actually have to make sure that you are aiming at yes, that insect it is and not, actually hitting the insect. It's not like some of these dinosaur chemicals that you buy, like 7-amalathion, uh, that have a residual time. Once that soap has dried on the leaf, it will not do any more killing. So you have to make sure that you get very good coverage and so you can pick up the leaf of your kale and squirt, 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 and make sure that you did a nice, a nice drench on that leaf. And any aphid that's on there, which is a very common pest of the, the um, brassica family, kale, cabbage, etc., will uh, will be killed. The corn borer, I'm not that familiar Just with it. Before you move on, what, that was how much per how much for the soap? Um, you can do, you can do um, two tablespoons as little as one tablespoon per gallon. Um, an average would be two tablespoons per gallon, and you can go as high as four tablespoons per gallon. And um, you can go up to 2% soap, but be very, very careful. Avoid spraying it in the middle of the day when it's hot. Doesn't matter if it's cool, but um, it can, at, especially at higher concentrations, it can damage the, the plant tissue. So, so the corn borer, you know, there's a, I don't have uh, any experience whatsoever with a corn borer, and so my suggestion would be to call your county extension agent. Michigan State University has a strong organic farming program. They may have some resources for you, and um, uh, there's also an operation in California called Rincon Vitova, R-I-N-C-O-N. V-I-T-O-V-A, Rincon Vitova. They are a very good resource for uh, natural methods and also in the state of Arizona, Arbico, A-R-B-I-C-O. And uh, you call one of those two places or email them and they have technical experts there who can help you solve some of these individual uh, pest problems. And at that point, our, uh, our time is up. And um, just a reminder, we'll have these sign-up sheets if you want, and then some of those things like what he just said, the Arbacore Organics and Rincon Vicova, and some of those things. Vitova. Vitova, oh, good, um, would be on there. Okay. You can pray. Thank you, Lord, for the time that we've had together, and I want to pray that for each of us, we will be remembering anew that that you are our, our creator, 
and that you created us to be gardeners. And I pray that you will inspire us and enable us to be good stewards of your creation so that we can be the servants that we need to be for you in these end times. Thank you for forgiving us our sins and for being our Father. In your holy name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Thank you.